I don't have your whole like resume memorized. Were you on Veep? You were on Veep. It's not on yes. your site. Uh huh. Yes. You got to update your site. I haven't updated the site in like ten years. Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, I was- you know, I have two podcasts. One is with executives and media, and it's called Insider Interviews. And this one, it's quite a living, is conversations about the professional and the personal with my more successful friends. So it's really more of my passion project. And today for It's Quite a Living, I'm very passionate about this person. I'm here with Isaiah Whitlock Jr., someone I've known for, oh my God, Isaiah, almost 40 years. Hard to believe, hard to believe, but it has been that long. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't sound, you know, a day younger than. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say I don't look a day younger. But, yeah. Uh, well, it's uh, audio. That's the beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the voice, the, the voice and in, in my youth is still here. It's true. I'm so, so happy to have this kind of platform to memorialize that friendship. But, you know, I do want to say I'm going to lead into episode five by saying we didn't start out as friends. <laughs> we didn't? No. Mm-mm. You started as my acting teacher at ACT. Oh, yes. Yes. Right. right. That's true. And you scared the hell out of me. Good. Good. Uh, it, whatever I was doing was working, you know. Uh, <laughs> it did. Yeah. It did. That, yeah. I practiced that. You know, it's like it comes in handy, especially here in New York when I'm on the subway or Someone's yeah. trying to bother me, you know, then I put on that face and, uh, and people say, you know, I think I would just rather go on to the next guy. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this brother looked like he doesn't want to be bothered, you know? And so, uh, it's people, so true. people leave you alone. It's so true. I, so I came across one of my journals and I shared this with you just a few weeks ago. <laughs> um, and I found some of these pages. So I'll explain what he means by that look. Um, here's what I wrote in my journal. First day of class, Isaiah Whitlock presiding. He asks for volunteers and says, act. A couple of kids try and they run out of every day or weird things to say. And Isaiah demands, is that what you call acting? And they don't know what to say. And he just stares at them. We're blown away. And you could hear a pin drop. We all come up with philosophical answers and we finally create the response that Isaiah accepts, which is acting is simply believable, honest communication. You must create a reality. But <laughs> you scared the hell out of us doing that. It was that stare. Is that what you call acting? I will never forget that. I can't believe 40 years ago I was that profound, you know. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was just kind of blowing in the wind back then, you know. But uh, that's good. That's good. I still wish I had a little bit of that today, you know. The the profundity? Yes, I wish I, I, wish I had a lot of things that I had back then. <laughs> that's one of them. Well, you, you have my undying friendship. Hey, it's Evie Moss, and this is episode five of It's Quite a Living with my friend Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Isaiah, who's done everything from 
playing Othello to being in Broadway shows, has also played the corrupt Clay Davis in The Wire. He's been in almost every Spike Lee joint, including the new Five Bloods on Netflix. Funny buddy movies, too, like Cedar Rapids. So if you don't know Isaiah... You will after this episode. I, I truly, I walked into that class at American Conservatory Theater really, really defensive. And by the end of it, you had us like fall into each other's arms as an exercise of trust, like just kind of like fall back. And maybe that's a, a classic scary teacher move in acting. I didn't know. I was so nervous and such a, a kid and I walked out of there a lot more in touch and with a friend. So. Yeah. You know, when you really think about it, trust is uh, is vital because you're on stage, you know, with another person or you're on screen with another person and you're, you're trusting them to bring their A game and give you what it is you need to make you do your A game. Mm. And uh, you don't really know until you're out there and you feel it and you're not getting what it is you need. And so you start to distrust. And that's when uh, everything goes off the rails. I mean, you don't have to do that exercise, but trust is a very, very important thing. Yeah. And then you begin to associate it with life and trust in life and everything like that. And uh, you begin to see how the two connect, Mm. that, that life is not any different than what it is you're, you know, performing on stage, you just have a different set of circumstances. And it seems that you also taught us vulnerability, and that seems to go hand in hand with a good life lesson too, is trust and vulnerability, scary strength. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, is uh, that's one of my pet peeves about a lot of actors. They don't allow themselves to, to be vulnerable. I mean, what you do naturally in life, I mean, I think most people are vulnerable to a certain extent. But on on stage, we have a tendency to be so guarded because people are watching and you've got to let that go. There's certain things you need to do to be able to find that vulnerability. Because to me, that's where the magic happens. When you start layering all these things like trust and vulnerability, believability, that's what people are looking for. And that's how you can, as an actor, stay ahead of people that they can't get out in front because if you're vulnerable, you can't pin that down. You'd never know where it's coming from, how it's going to happen. Uh, And so you'll always keep the audience on the edge of their seat. But if you're just floating on the surface, the audience will get ahead of you. They'll get bored Mm -hmm. and things will start to fall apart. So I said in the introduction that you've done serious to comedy, of course, the corrupt Clay Davis and The Wire, The Five Bloods, and and in between Cedar Rapids. So is it any different to play a comedic role with vulnerability versus a serious acting role? No, there's no difference whatsoever, as far as I'm concerned. The comedy is going to come from that vulnerability, uh, because people see you in a certain situation and it's so believable that they want, they start to laugh. I never looked at myself as a comedian or trying to be funny, 
But I think the fun, the, the, the comedy comes out of the seriousness of that situation. And so people look at that and it might remind them of themselves or they're wondering how you're going to get out of it. And that's where the comedy comes from, or even the seriousness of it. The two are not that far apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the comedy or comedy and tragedy or comedy and seriousness. And the approach is always going to be, be the same. Sometimes you'll play the opposite of it, where uh, that comedy can be very touching and heartfelt. I Googled you. Well, I didn't Google you, but I put like Isaiah Whitlock Jr. in the little search thing on my TV guide. And there were like half a dozen things that are currently airing right now, you know, not the least of which is to five bloods, but you know, the lost husband and things like that. So you've got a lot going on. What was the turning point that got you to have a lot going on? I don't think there was one turning point. I had quite a career, especially when I was at the American Conservatory Theater. I was working all the time. I had a lot of energy and I was preparing for that opportunity. Uh, And uh, and I I had a pretty nice life in uh, San Francisco. Then I came to New York and it took a while to sort of get things started. But I had developed enough of a base in San Francisco to support myself in New York to not get frustrated. I, I had a bit of an idea as to what to do, how to hang in there, so to speak. And when you say turning point, I did a play, this was maybe about 20 years ago, at a place called the Tribeca Playhouse. And I did a play by Christopher Shin called Four. And uh, I think that might be the turning point when I think back, because... It was a 50-seat house, and the world was changing, and I played this sort of like pedophile school teacher, and it was a huge success here in New York City. We got reviewed by the New York Times, I think it was twice, maybe three times, because the, the story was so compelling. The world was changing at that time. And it was kind of like this brave new world with the internet and computers and things like that. And what I did was I fashioned the character in a way that you could not dismiss the guy. And it was total manipulation on my part because I made the audience side with the pedophile. Uh, I made the audience feel something for what the pedophile was going through. I know that sounds terrible, but this is what I was handed. This is what I had to do because my whole feeling was like, look, there's no way I'm going to be able to go out there and just play some guy like that. But uh, you get inside that character and you start to work with, okay, why is he this way? What is he feeling? What is he going through? By the end of the show, I built a very strong case I mean, it was terrible. You know, I got letters. People hated me. But um, but I think it was from the the attention Mm. that I got in The New York Times at that time. You know, in, in the case of four, you had to play a pedophile. And, you know, you said you were you played the cards you were dealt and you had to make him sympathetic because that was your character. That was your responsibility. But have you been in a situation where um, you 
absolutely didn't agree with the way the director wanted you to approach a role? Usually I sort of kind of get all that out worked out before I even get cast. Mm. Uh, when I, when I did this play for, they said, we have this play that we've been passing around and nobody wants to do it uh, because of the subject matter. And, uh, and they said in conversations, your name keeps coming up as a, as a guy who does these types of things. Wait, and I said, oh, really? wow. what kind of things? <laughs> that's what, that's what I want. <laughs> and they say, you're just the guy who can, who can handle this type of material. And I said, well, uh, send me a copy of the script, you know, and let me take a look at it. And for about the next week, I was thinking, oh, this must be, you know, they're going to send me a copy of Hamlet or uh, some great Shakespearean tragedy or, or, or uh, uh, something. And it, and it was this play for, and then that's when I started thinking, oh my God, you know, who the hell, you know, my name keeps coming up. Well, <laughs> what is that all wow. about? <laughs> but I realized what they were saying was that somebody who would not balk at the material, who would be willing to give it a shot. I mean, I began to look at it as a bit of a compliment, you know, as to somebody who could get inside this character and make them believable and, and, and watchable. Uh, and that's what I was able to do. So that kind of brings us to working with directors. Oh, what happened? Nothing. Okay. I got to wait for that noise though. I'm just getting comfortable. Okay. <laughs> Have you done a podcast okay. or radio before? <laughs> you know, you can take the boy out of Indiana, <laughs> but you can't take the Indiana out of the boy. Oh, so one of the the directors you probably have some shorthand with now um, where, you know, you don't have to audition anymore is, of course, Spike Lee. How did your relationship with Spike come about? And is there any Spike Lee joint you have not been in? <laughs> well, Spike Lee came to see the show that I was doing downtown. Really? That, I'm psychic. Yeah. I didn't even know that that was the connection. That was the connection. He came, he saw the show, and uh, he came backstage. And we he chatted with everybody in the show, which there was only four of us. We were freaked out. We were totally freaked <laughs> out. And a couple of days later, he invited me to audition for a movie called The 25th mm. Hour. And uh, I auditioned, and there was a moment where I said, shit, <laughs> and Spike said, do that again. I did it again, and he said, you should keep that. You know, we were kind of laughing about it. We were just, we were throwing around a bunch of stuff and just kind of improvising at the audition and everything like that. And he said, you know, you should think about keeping that. And then he cast me in the 25th hour, and that's when I first did that, and that's where that all came oh, about. that's so funny. But it, but it was because Spike came and saw this play that was getting all of this attention downtown. And, and that's where that all came about. And going back to 2-4, there was something very wonderful about the grittiness of it. You know, you're downtown 
in this sort of grind joint of a theater, 50-seat house, paint peeling off the walls. And it was everything you see in the movies about, you know, theater in the old days and, and doing things like that. So, you know, you're not making any money. You got a cat running around. There was one performance where the cat ran across the stage uh, and you're faced with, do I stop the show and say, we got to get rid of the cat? Or do I pretend the cat's not there uh, and the audience doesn't see the cat? Or do I work the cat into the action? It was it was nasty, and then you know you put the, you put the character that I'm playing on top of it, and it was just nasty. Uh, but it was uh, honest to God, true gritty type theater. But that's where my relationship with Spike Lee, came and from. that's where the she thing started. And I thought mm-hmm. it was the other way around. I thought that you started that as your trademark in The Wire. And then he no. had you do it in all of his films. So that's interesting. No. And I never, um, in my wildest dreams, that I think that would take off like that. Uh, to the Bobblehead Hall that, of Fame, we might add. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but that was never, ever my intention. Because if you go back and watch The Wire, a lot of people say it in The mm-hmm. Wire. And that was that's kind of like a, that's, for, for lack of a better word, kind of like a black mm-hmm. thing, you know, that you hear growing up constantly, you know. Uh, my uncle used to do it quite a bit. And I was talking to a friend of mine, and I said, you know, there's this strange thing. People seem so fascinated by this sort of common thing that we all say shit. And he said, no, he said, I think the difference is the way you do it, the way you can place it in your voice and your nose and how long you can do it. And that's where the difference comes from. And that's what makes it ring out because it, it, it's, it's not like anybody else just out there doing it. And I've, but I've heard people do it. I've heard people do it all the from, you know, throughout the years. And, and it's a very common thing. But I think it was the way I was doing it that was making it kind of sing. And when I was doing it, uh, was making it become this thing to the bobblehead. <laughs> well, I, I say almost anything you say, even you've <laughs> called me on almost every birthday and said, hey, baby, happy birthday. See, I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah. You got to get down. Yeah, but I always, I always do it early in the morning when, when my voice is yeah, very low. Yeah, all right. So you said that, you know, it's like a black thing. And, and so not only do I not have your pipes, but I'm not black. All these years, I thought you were. Well, you're you're an honorary. Uh, uh, Thank you. That's all right. You've been to my, my Hanukkah party many times, so. <laughs> yeah, okay. But okay. Um, my friend Jackie Green, um, she's a, a Broadway publicist and one of the funniest women I know. And she told me as the Black Lives Movement was taking hold recently, he would call her black friends and say, I'm calling to say the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. after 37 years of friendship, I've probably said the wrong thing to you. And it's it's weird that we even have to acknowledge our differences. I mean, I, I, I've said the wrong thing uh, many a times, you know. Either you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if somebody has, if somebody says the wrong thing, I very kindly uh, uh, correct them. Yeah. 
and they'll be correct when I'm done. <laughs> oh, God, there's the stare again. I, I want to talk about uh, a little bit more, of course, of, about your life, just to kind of um, circle back on some of the professional. Last August, so almost a year ago, I got an email from you. I was checking in saying, hey, when can we get together? And I didn't know you weren't still in the city at that point. And you wrote back, still in Vietnam, then to New Orleans to shoot a new Showtime show with Brian Cranston. So that's mm-hmm. like, it's quite a living, Isaiah. Um, so. <laughs> I mean, if you put it, if you put it like that, I mean, yeah. uh, uh, you know, people sort of criticize me sometimes because I make it seem like, uh, just kind of like a normal thing. Yeah, you, you do. Know, like, uh, and then it's like, as if you're expecting someone to say, okay, uh, I'm just not leaving Paris, uh. <laughs> And uh, I'll be at Hong Kong for a couple of days, and then we'll hook up one at the uh, coffee shop uh, back in New <laughs> <Yeah>. York City. <laughs> you know, but, but that's that's what I was doing. That's what I was. That's I what I was doing. And it seems like people always call me when uh, when you get to drop a I'm, little name or drop where you are. But I, I can tell you the most famous one. I won't tell you the person, but I got a call from a director one time. And he said, Isaiah, where are you? And I was shooting a movie in London and I had about a week or so off. So I flew to Italy because I was looking to buy a property over there at Mm -hmm. one time when I was driving from Rome to Florence. And I'm driving, driving, driving and the phone rings and it's this director and he says, where are you? And I said, well, I was in London, but I had about a week off. I'm in Rome and I'm on my way to Florence uh, to meet with my lawyer, uh, Giacomo, uh, to purchase this this property. And I was thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, this is it. This is it. You know, I'm in London. I'm on my way to Florence. I've got this famous director calling me. Oh, my God, this is, you know, this is it's happening. It's happening. This is how it works, you know. And the director said, oh, that's, you know, that sounds great. That sounds great. And we talked a little bit about The Wire and uh, how much he enjoyed it and everything like that. And he said, "And okay, well, you know, enjoy your trip to Florence. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Where's the three-picture deal? I mean, what? <laughs> no, I was ready to wreck my car. I was like, dude, you're really messing this up. You're messing up the, you know, I'm waiting for, we want you to star uh, as the next Darth Vader. <laughs> it was like, come on with it. Come on with it. You know, I'm driving, I'm on the phone, you know, come on, come on. What is the deal? You know? Um, and you would call him to say uh, hi. Yeah. Just call him to yeah. say hi. Just call him to say hi when I tell people that, you know, especially my actor friends, that story, they, uh, they have no sympathy. No, for me I, ha- I have none. And no. <laughs> uh, and the other thing is that here's the other reality is yes. After Vietnam, he did have to go to NOLA, New Orleans. And yes. um, yet, unfortunately, you're like, I think 80% of the way through shooting and COVID hits and mm-hmm. everybody bails on, New Orleans, and you, as I recall the story, kind of gave up your New York apartment because you were going to be there for months. So <laughs> you're now stuck in New Orleans with no Bourbon Street action and none of your little friends. 
<laughs> from the shoot. So, you know, it's it's tough to be famous and famous and homeless. <laughs> I have nowhere to go. I'm homeless. Yes. It reminds me of when I first got to New York. I was homeless mm. for about maybe a and month. And I wasn't even living here. You could have had my bad sleeper sofa. No, it was bad. I had gotten together with a bunch of friends and we had a little small theater down in uh, Chelsea, which was bad at the time, uh, way on the west side. And uh, I would go in there. I would sneak in there at night and sleep. But I would always had to be out by 8 o'clock before anybody got there because I didn't want anybody to know that I was sleeping there. And uh, I would get up at like around about 7 o'clock and just go and sit in the subway on a bench and either continue sleeping or get on the train and ride for a while. I mean, it was it was wow. bad. This 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 was like, do I just jump on the tracks now? And, <laughs> I and, you. and let the and let the E train get me or or I mean and I was about as low as I had ever gotten. I don't think I really remember that story, that time in your life. What what changed after that, Isaiah? Oh, I got a I, yeah, I got a great job as a bartender, started making a lot of money, and then I could afford an apartment. And by the grace of God, you know, things stabilized, yeah. you know. But uh, it was bad. And it was during the winter, <gasps> when winter used to be really bad in New York City, uh, before global warming. And uh, it was just bad. I'm glad that you pulled up and out of that. And I don't know if this started your your love and appreciation of wine that bartending saved you, but your bio talks about you being kind of like a Renaissance man. And I do know this about you. You're a huge wine collector. When you were in Italy, did that property have anything to do with a vineyard? Because I know you bottled your own label, didn't you? Uh, it, it, it did. I did do like my own label and everything like that. I still make mm -hmm. wine. Uh, and uh, Like I Love uh, Lucy with the bathtub? Well, you know, everybody says that, but a winemaker, a great winemaker from Italy, explained to me why they do the wine and stuff with their feet. In some places, it's rare, but in some places, it is still done about the bruising of the grapes. And you get a sexier wine when it's done with your feet because you don't tear up the grapes all that much and stuff and release so much tannin into the wine. So that is that is still happening. But I did want to, you know, maybe possibly do something in Italy with wine and stuff like that. But circumstances kind of changed and now I just make enough wine to give to friends and stuff like that and they seem to enjoy it. Well, not only did I not get the gold-plated autographed bobblehead of you saying she it, I don't believe I've gotten an Isaiah Whitlock bottle of wine. So when you get back you, you never you never got a bobblehead. I got head? a bobblehead. I got one of the early bobbleheads. Oh, you did. I did not get the oh, plated autographed one. Oh, mm -hmm. of of a bobblehead. A bobblehead. Nor did I get a bottle of wine. Yeah, the gold the gold plated bobblehead. Don't try to don't try uh, to get out of this. No, but it kind of fizzled a, a little bit. Uh, that was kind of like a special 
thing we were we were giving out. Most I rest people just my case. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the gold plated Isaiah. The gold plated bobblehead was like you know like a grand you know I mean you know forty I mean, years. You know, like, what kind did I get you? The one in the box that you know you shipped to me in the mail. But you you got a first edition <laughs> bobblehead, and that's worth that's worth. Do you want to explain what we're now. talking about, by the way? I make these bobbleheads that it's a talking bobblehead that says shit, and uh, you can get the bobblehead. It's in there's three phrases, three ways I say shit on on the bobblehead. It's a great product, and it's a very solid, well made product. And uh, we did a, a campaign on Kickstarter, and we raised over a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> to make to make the, the wrong head. business. Well, you know, I started to wonder. You know, I might be in the wrong <laughs> business. But, you know, but when they handed me the check, I was like, you know, should I pull like a real Clay Davis and say, "Hey, look, you know, I'm keeping the money," you know, because <laughs> uh, it, it was like now I got to make the goddamn thing, um, you know. And I thought people would say, "Ah, oh, well, you know." It was Clay Davis that we were giving the money to, so uh, yeah. you know he, he took all of it. But we did make the bobblehead, and I think we we sold about ten thousand. Wow! And uh, we're on the third or fourth edition. Okay. Uh, but um, but the bobblehead is still great. still doesn't uh, great. answer why I didn't get the bottle of wine. But that's okay because I know you're coming back to New York soon, and I will make you pay. Oh yeah, well I mean I've got quite enough wine. What you want to get is the the new, I have a new wine coming out. There are very high end grapes that I got from Napa. And uh, that's the one you okay. want to get. Uh, you want to okay. get one of those. That's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Better than the two buck chuck that I have in the cabinet now. <laughs> yeah. You've been to my Hanukkah parties before, as I mentioned. So mm -hmm. what's your opinion on the best wine to pair with latkes? <laughs> Come on. Uh, well, you said you had two buck chuck. Uh, <laughs> My latkes are better than that. <laughs> no, I'm not even, I'm not talking about the latkes. I mean, it's just, you know, people coming to the party and everything like that. But what I would do is with, with latkes, I would go with like a Pinot Noir or uh, maybe a Merlot, uh, to me, definitely not a Cabernet. That would just be way too heavy. If it was a party, you could also do uh, like a real nice French Beaujolais, something that's not going to overwhelm. You could also maybe do a white, but I wouldn't do anything real acidic. Even though they're like potatoes and things like that, you still want to have that taste come oh. through. You don't want to be. You don't want it overwhelmed by a real heavy wine. So let's bring it back to current time now with what we mentioned in New Orleans. What's the name of the show, and when do you think it'll actually see the light of day on Showtime? Well, the name of the show is Your Honor, and uh, Brian Cranston plays a judge, so it deals with the uh, the legal system here in uh, New Orleans, but it could be pretty much anywhere kind of like the wire dealing with everything that was happening in Baltimore, but the feel is somewhat universal. I think it's going to be a great series. Uh, we got about maybe three quarters of the way through it. 
and we had to shut down because mm. of COVID. So once things kind of ease up or we flatten the curve, we'll all get back together and finish mm-hmm. it up and uh, hope people yeah, enjoy it. Yeah, sounds great. I'm pretty sure they will. I, I don't have a, a cool segue to this one, but I do want to talk about a little bit more of your past because I love that you are one of like 11 children and at least two of you are kind of famous, maybe more. You want to talk about that? Well, my sister is one half of Madison Ward and the Mama Bear, and Madison Ward is her son, uh, my nephew. So they have a duo uh, that uh, they play uh, now pretty much all over the world, but they're doing very well. And that's my sister. I love that. I love that. I was just uh, checking out some of their tweets recently. So Isaiah, do you have a a favorite memory of say me? (laughs) A little bit about me. (laughs) God, we'd be here for another hour. (laughs) Maybe when I played nurse Carol, And what did you play? We did a corporate video that my sister was producing for the National League for Nursing. Yes. We got you cheap back then. (laughs) You know, back then, that was still a a good job. I think that was on your resume for a while. Yeah. I mean, that was was a good job. I do remember, though, I was born. You were. And I had gone to Harlem to buy a wig. (laughs) What? Yes, yes, yes. I think I even bought a wig. We just didn't use the wig. But uh, I think uh, your sister wanted me to have some hair. Yeah, and I had this wig. I had a wig. (laughs) And I remember the guy in Harlem being very angry with me because he had tried a bunch of wigs on. And I thought, oh, no, no, God, no. You know, I mean, I look like some pimp, you know, working. And uh, it was like, and, and he became very angry. Uh, not, not, no, not angry, but I remember him saying, well, oh, oh okay, fine, fine. Well, look, because I said I wanted to look around. That was my way of getting uh-huh. out of it. And he says, well, you know, go out there and look at, look at the rest. And then when you come back, you'll get the best. And that, I remember him saying <laughs> that, you know. And, you know, and I wanted to say, you've got a beautiful collection of James Brown wigs here, uh, but I'm just not playing James Brown. Uh, I'm supposed to be a doctor, uh, orderly in a hospital. And uh, uh, this is just not going to work. Uh, You look look good bald in in that thing. I think that you probably set the trend. It, it yeah. worked. It worked. It, it was. It was fine. You know. I mean, you look at it now, but you know, a lot of people were not bald back then. You know, everybody had yeah, like an afro point. or you something. You started like it. But I remember thinking they're going to get me shot. You know, uh, I'm up here in Harlem <laughs> trying to buy it. Trying to buy it. Trying for to the buy nurses' a video. Uh, yeah, for a nurse video. <laughs> you know. Uh, it was anyway. also the time. Speaking of holiday meals. We did go visit my sister once, and it was during Passover. And at Passover, you open the door to a spirit named Elijah, and, and you invite in anyone who, who needs food and sustenance and what have you. And you know, you set a cup of wine out for Elijah. So um, my sister didn't know you were coming. So at a certain point in the meal, <laughs> I 
told you to wait outside. And I said, all right, now we're going to go open the door for Elijah. And we opened the door and there was Isaiah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, not quite Elijah, Isaiah, Isaiah, Elijah. I answered to both. Uh, Just let let me in, let me in because I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, we've we've had some fun over the years. But uh, no, that was that was very very nice. It was I had never been to anything uh, like that, and so it was it was quite an experience, quite an interesting experience. The only thing I gotta say is there was a very peculiar fish. (laughs) (laughs) It was Passover. Yeah, your the the fish that's like a whole chopped up. Melange. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't want to say anything at the time, but um, it was what, that wasn't to it your was. palate. Gefilte fish. That's what you're thinking of. Say it with you know, me. Gefilte fish. Good. Ge- gefilte fish. It. <laughs> gefilte. <laughs> well, you know, I. It, in all honesty, it tasted like the name. <laughs> it, t- uh, it, it it's it's appropriately named, but it was yeah. wow. I'm glad this is not the first thing I tasted because otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> Elijah Elijah would have Elijah would have been on his way back to the train. You know? uh, I, 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 I haven't I haven't played Elijah <laughs> since, but it was it wasn't because of the gut. Uh, Gefilte, but it, no, it was very very nice. Uh, and it was good to see your sister and, and spend that time. And it yeah. was wonderful. Yes. Well, you are always welcome as Elijah or Isaiah or on my podcast. Can't wait for you to come back to New York. <laughs> now I'm going to start getting requests uh, to, <laughs> to to show up at people's house. Yeah, so, and here, uh, here's what I would say you know, to them. Make him bring the wine. <laughs> yes, yeah. Isaiah, we could definitely go on for another hour. um, And it's been so much fun. Thank you so much for first and foremost, being my friend all these years. Second of all, for, you know, everything you give to everybody as their friend and and your your generosity and entertainment. And I just, I love you. And I think that you are tremendous. So Isaiah Whitlock Jr., it's quite a living it's quite a life. Okay, you almost forgot that line. <laughs> you want to run that? You yeah, want to yeah. run that again? <laughs> Although that was pretty funny. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember like I used to. You know. <laughs> Isaiah, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Stay safe. Stay well on your way home from New Orleans. And all I have to say is. Isaiah, it's quite a living. EB, it's quite a life. Thank you, my friend. Well, I really want to thank you for listening, for sharing, for subscribing to, hopefully even rating this podcast and telling your friends, because after all, this is just about talking with friends. So thank you for being in my expanding circle of friends. And the truth is, whether you're living quite the living, we're all really lucky to be living quite the life.